Welcome to City on a Hill's podcast. This week's podcast can be downloaded on iTunes or our media library at chccny.com. Uh, today I'll be, uh, we have our, our annual meeting at, uh, it's kind of our come together meeting at 1.30. So today, uh, I don't mean any offense, but I'll be, I'll be scro- getting out of here real fast today. Uh, so if I don't get to see you, uh, a very Merry Christmas to you and a Happy New Year. And I think there's even a date scheduled in 2017. So good Lord willing, uh, look forward to being back with you then. Continuing in Advent. How do we prepare? You know, I'm sure Pastor James has told you Advent comes from some Latin words meaning to come and arrival. If you're new to church, you're new to Christianity, first of all, I'm glad you're here. Okay, this can be a great Sunday for you to kind of piece some things together. And if you've been around for a long time, you know Advent is all about a season of preparation, right? The coming of the Lord Jesus as a little baby born in a manger in Bethlehem and also for Christians today, the second coming. We believe he's coming back this time, not as a little baby, but as a triumphant king returning for his own. The point is it's a season of great preparation. So how do you prepare in Advent? Let's let's leave off preparation for the Lord of Lords, King of Kings, High King of the Universe for just a moment. How do you prepare in general for Advent? All right, some of you have company coming over. Uh, you, uh, you know that it's a season of great preparation, right? I don't have to remind you. Some of you are already in the throes of preparation. There are, uh, gifts to be purchased and cards to be mailed and fruitcakes to whatever one does with fruitcakes. Presumably you have to procure them and then leave them somewhere for years. And you understand, right? If you're preparing a bunch of stuff, you get it. You've got, you know, here's the thing. Some of you are just good at this. This is what's unbelievable. Now, I believe there is a spiritual gift of hospitality. And so maybe God has divinely helped you in this. But some of you, you're just good at holidays. You're good at preparation. None of this stresses you out. You do it with such poise and grace. You are right now, right now, you are on Pinterest searching for ideas under John the Baptist. Like you're not even listening to the start, you understand you're good at my sister is one of these people. She amazes me. She, my sister, is, my older sister is like Martha Stewart without the prison. Uh, she hand makes many of her own ornaments, her cards. She's that person. Her Christmas cards are mailed the day after Thanksgiving every year. And her perfectly beautiful family is there and her house is immaculate. All her shopping's been done long ago. She bakes, she's that person. She bakes cookies for everybody at work. She works at a hospital. She goes and she bakes cookies because she just had extra time and wanted to show love. And yeah, and I'm not, I'm not making this up every year. I'm not making this up. Hand knits scarves and mittens and gloves for nieces and nephews so that when we come there, we've got these hand, yeah. Don't you hate people like that so much? I know. I mean, I love her. She's my sister, but wow. I look at her like, how are we from, how do we share DNA? Like, how is that at all possible? You know, I'm, I'm remembering to buy an Intamins on the way. Uh, all right. So you get it. You got to prepare for people, Advent, preparation, whatever. Let's take it up a notch. How do you prepare for how do you, how do you prepare spiritually? Again, it's too much. I think just to come in and be like, prepare for the King of Kings, Lord of Lords. Let's just ramp it up a little bit. So say somebody wants to come over, but, but spiritually you sort of feel, I got it. Uh, uh, past pastors, the lechies are coming to your house. Now, some of your friends with the lechies and you know, they're such gracious people, you know, you know, they're not even coming to see your house. They're coming to see you. And so you don't have to prepare your house. You know what I mean? But let's just say, for example, you didn't know them. And even when I say that pastor, right, reverend, right, they're coming over. 
What do you do? And what if they wanted to get a little nosy? How would you prepare? How would you do if the lechies, I'm talking about unannounced, show up, right? Knock on the door. (laughs) Well, hello! I kids! Get that DVD out and put in VeggieTales quick, right? You change all your radio presets to K-Love. You should have called, right? Right? And the first thing they do, let me see, if you don't mind, let me see your checkbook and your recent credit card statements. What? Right? Yeah, I just want to see how you're doing financially. I'd like to see, just cite, just go ahead, log in. Yeah, let me see your internet browser history. Want to see what you've been going through. What? No, you really should have called, right? Right? No, I just want to see. I want to have access. How you doing? Right? For many of us, uh, you, you know, does that Bible, there is a lot of dust on that Bible. Well, you know, I have an app. I promise you got, you got to believe me. I haven't look all that. Okay. All that may be good, right? But you get it. You would want to, you would want to spruce things up. You would want to add the spiritual equivalent of a throw pillow into your world. You would want to tweak some things, right? You'd want to get some things right. So how? That, listen, that's for your friends. That's for the lechies, who we all know would be so gracious and sweet anyway. But you get my point. What then? What? How would? How do humans prepare then for the coming of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords? For that, you'd need a prophet. You would need a prophet ripped straight out of the pages of Isaiah. If only there was some sermon series on Isaiah by which could give us a ref- For those of you who are new, I just preached a sermon series on Isaiah, whatever. We need this prophet, and we have one, in this wild wilderness prophet named John the Baptist. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 3, and look at how he gets the message across. When it comes to spiritual preparation, when it comes to preparing the way for the Lord, this is what I love. John the Baptist, okay, is never going to have a a home and garden TV Christmas special. You're never going to turn on ABC and be like a very special Christmas with John the Baptist, right? He's, you know what I mean? These, these hors d'oeuvres are made of locusts and wild honey. That tingling feeling is acid reflux. As you realize you just ate a locust and wild, honey. you know, the guy's wild. He's out there in the wilderness. This is how, see, Mar- Martha Stewart is like add a decorative throw, right? And when the lechies come over, it's like, you know, clean up our act a little. John the Baptist is like, burn the house down, right? Well, here we go. You'll see. <clears throat> now when John, oh, I, I have given you, it seems the wrong text. I've given you Matthew 11. So I thankfully have a paper Bible <laughs> from which I can read. <clears throat> In those days, John the Baptist, oh, sorry, Matthew chapter 3, verse 1. Did I give the reference already? I did? Okay. Matthew 3, 1. You got to get there. Turn in your Bible or turn on your Bible. You can use your phones because I messed up the thing, so you get a pass. Just don't, don't, don't get on social media. Just stay focused. <laughs> chapter 3, verse 1 of Matthew. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. City on a Hill uh, members that have been here a while, uh, I know Matthew told you that that prediction that there would be one who comes before is from the prophet Isaiah. But be honest, you didn't need to be told that it was from Isaiah. You recognized immediately that that scripture was from Isaiah, didn't you? Please help me out, didn't you? Didn't you? Anybody know what chapter? Well, you knew it was Isaiah, though, didn't you? That's right. And that's 
That's right. It is correct. 40. These, these, yes. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. We've seen a wild prophet in the desert before, uh, who was dressed like that. Only one, Elijah, way back in first and second Kings were told about this wild prophet who, uh, 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 brings the truth regardless of what people think. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him. Everybody wants to see. And they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come bear fruit in keeping with repentance and do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his weed into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. It's uh, <clears throat> clear that with John the Baptist, he's not talking about some spiritual tweaks. He's not talking about, listen, you need to read your Bible more. You need to, you know, make sure you don't do any more bad habits. You need to be a little nicer during the holidays. That's all fine and good. I want you to be nicer. I want you to, to have better habits. But John the Baptist is not going after that. He's going after something much deeper. John the Baptist says that's all superficial change, but he's going after something more. It's hard maybe to get the sense of the, the force that John is preaching with. And so uh, let me share with you how Matthew 3 reads in the message. This is a paraphrase by Eugene Peterson. He says, John and his message were authorized by Isaiah's prophecy. Thunder in the desert. Prepare for God's arrival. Make the road smooth and straight. When John realized that a lot of Pharisees and Sadducees were sh showing up for a baptismal experience because it was becoming the popular thing to do, he exploded. Brood of snakes. What do you think you're doing slithering down here to the river? You think a little water on your snake skins is going to make any difference? It's your life that must change, not your skin. And don't think you can pull rank by claiming Abraham is father. Being a descendant of Abraham is neither here nor there. Descendants of Abraham are a dime a dozen. What counts is your life. Is it green and blossoming? Because if it's dead wood, it goes on the fire. Merry Christmas to all. <laughs> to all. Right? What's, what's my point? John the Baptist is saying, listen, if, if Martha Stewart's coming over, get your doilies all correct. And if the pastors are coming over, clean up your habits. If God is coming, what could you possibly do to prepare for that? Really, what could you do? What could you do? And John tells you. That's one word. And if you're a note taker, all you have to do is take one note. Literally one word. His word is repent. Repent. What does that word repent mean? What is repentance? And real repentance, okay? Not just like verse 7 when he talks to the Pharisees and Sadducees. He says, oh, you guys coming down here, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? In other words, you're just, you know, listen, we all repent when we get caught doing something bad, you know? We're all, when you get pulled over for speed and you are the most repentant person there is, right? Everybody repents when they get caught. And that's what he's saying. You guys got caught, maybe. I'm talking about real heart-level repentance. What is that? Charles Spurgeon writes... Uh, to me, what is the best definition of repentance I could find in the last two weeks? <sighs> I just I want to leave room. It may not be the best one ever, but come on, you get what you get. Repentance, he said. Listen to this. Listen to this carefully. I'll break it down. Repentance is a discovery of the evil of sin, a mourning that we have committed it, 
and a resolution to forsake it. It is, in fact, a deep and practical change of mind which makes a person love what once was hated and hate what once was loved. Now, there's a lot in that, so let's break it down. Repent, really, means to turn, to change direction, change one mind. So if I'm going this way, I want to to repent and go in the opposite direction. I'll never forget being down south one time, and this old boy was getting fired up, and I was at a youth camp, and he was preaching, and he said, Students, there needs to be a change in your life. It's got to be a radical. You're you're headed straight for hell. There needs to be a 360-degree turnaround straight. And I'm going, well... (laughs) You know, that would sort of just, (laughs) and right back what I was doing. But I knew what he meant. You know what I mean? He meant 180, right? I ain't ain't good at geometry, but I know the Lord. Anyway, (laughs) and that preacher was me. Anyway, 180 degree, a repent. I'm walking one direction. Repent means I'm turning and going in absolute other direction. Spurgeon says there's three, there's three things that happen in our heart. A change of mind. The first is a discovery of the evil of sin, a mourning that we've committed, uh, that we've committed that sin, and a resolution to forsake it. A discovery of the evil of sin. Listen, when we talk about repentance, it's possible, you might think, when preachers talk about repentance, what they mean is the initial repentance by which someone is utterly born again and saved. And, and, and that is a step, right? Repent and believe. So that is true, all right? So that the first time you, you know, however you word it, you, you, you transfer your trust. You were in control of your life. You transfer your trust to King Jesus. By faith alone, you repent of sin, right? And, and, and that's it. That's true, but uh, J.I. Packer, for example, says repentance means turning from as much as you know of your sin to give as much as you know of yourself to as much as you know of your God. And as our knowledge grows at these three points, so our practice of repentance has to be enlarged. Packer's right. He's saying, yes, like when you're first saved, you know a little bit about your sin. God doesn't reveal it all at once, but he shows you enough to say, I don't want this anymore. And you take everything you know of yourself, which your self-knowledge is going to grow as you grow in Christ, and you're going to turn with as much as you know of God. But soon, you're going to know more about God, you're going to know more about yourself, and you're going to know more about your sin. And so it's like your repentance can, can be upgraded. You can, you, it's almost like you can improve upon that re- repentance. That he, what I'm saying is there are Christians here who can repent this morning as you learn more about what God says. It's not like a one-time, once-and-done thing. A, back to the point. A discovery of the evil of sin. Uh, here's what I mean. Before you became a Christian, the Bible would say that in Romans 6, it has some harsh language. It says that you were a slave to sin. You were, it uses imagery, uh, image of slavery. It uses imagery of, of being captive. It uses imagery of even death, that you were dead in sin, right? And here's what I think that means in some part. Before you became a Christian, your, your mind, you got to understand, you were discipled by the world and the world's systems. You were trained to think like the world. You were trained to respond like the world. You didn't think twice about certain things that the Bible calls sin, you didn't even think twice about it. I'll never forget years ago being in a a men's group and an older man, it was a men's group. We were discussing, you know, men's issues and how to live as men of faith. He was an older man. He was saved later in life. And he brought up the topic of viewing. He struggled with viewing explicit material, pornography. And he said, he said something that, that shocked me. He said, it wasn't until he became a Christian that it ever occurred to him that the viewing of pornography could be wrong. 
just didn't didn't even think of it as wrong until he became a Christian. And then he was told all the, you know, all these verses and things that talked about it and kind of the case had to be built. Now, you and I may look at that. Now, I mean, he may have said it was unsavory. He may have said it was, you know, not sort of uncouth thing to do, but not, not, not wrong, not evil. See, now you may say, is this guy insane? That's crazy. No, he's not insane. He's been discipled by the world. And the world does it this way. If enough people say something's okay, then it's just okay. And you think you've been discipled. Imagine what our kids are going to grow up hearing over and over, right? It's just going to, you're, you're just going to kind of follow along in the patterns of the world without thinking about it. That's what this guy did. He would have never thought to call sin evil. Now, you may not go that far. You may say, well, of course, I, I, I mean, these taboo sins, I would know they're evil. But what about things that, I don't know, jealousy? Oh, before I was a Christian, you know, I struggled with jealousy or something. But you, yeah, that was bad or everybody makes mistakes. But would you ever think of jealousy as evil? Something that could rot you from the inside out and make you corrupt. One thing about becoming a Christian, one thing about repentance is the discovery of the evil of sin. You begin to see sin for what it is. That this, this habit or this attitude or this mindset or this unbelief is not just a mistake. It's not just bad. It's utterly evil. And the Holy Spirit will do this thing where he convicts you of a particular sin. Not just condemnation. That's from the devil. Satan does the, con- he's in the condemnation business. Where it's just, oh, you're all bad and you are completely evil. No, no, no. With, with the Holy Spirit, there's a surgical precision, laser-like precision, to convict a certain habit or attitude or unbelief or mindset. And God's saying, this doesn't belong in the life of my child, my son, my daughter. It's got to go. There's a conviction there. And you realize sin is utterly evil. And then there's a mourning that we've committed this sin. We're sorry over that sin. Sick of sinful condition. You might hear, imagine the story Jesus tells of the prodigal son, where man has two sons and the younger squanders his dad's inheritance, goes out on a far journey, squanders it with wild living. And it says in Luke 15, when he came to his senses, there's a kind of mourning. And not just a, all right, God, uh, I'm, I'm not going to sin anymore. I mean, you know, I'm Look, here's the deal. You delight to forgive sin, and I delight to commit sin. So, you know, you're lucky to have me back. No, there was no presumption. There was real humility. Remember, he even, he even hatches a plan. Remember this? The prodigal son, the younger brother. He says, when I go back to my dad, I'm just going to tell him I'm not even your son anymore. I won't even be your son. Just let me be like a slave in your house. That's all I ask, right? That's part of the beauty of that story, that the, the father won't have it and welcomes him back as a son. But the point is, he's not presuming upon the grace of his father. There's a genuine mourning. And Spurgeon adds, and a resolution to forsake it. So a discovery of the evil of sin, a mourning that we've committed, and a resolution to forsake it. And that means just that. A resolution to forsake the sin. Um, that sounds so obvious, and yet I think it's profound. When you truly repent from a sin, you almost have to grieve the loss of that sin. Is that crazy? When you repent of a sin, a lot of people talk about how, well, that, that should be easy. Of course we should repent of sin. But that's the thing. That's, sin is tempting, right? And we've loved it for so long. And it's been with us maybe when nobody else has. Think about an addict turning from something that is destroying her. Turning from something that is destroying him. It's not enough to just say, why can't you just cut that off? There's a kind of mortifying of the flesh there. There's a kind of killing it. There's a kind of saying, no, I can't have this anymore. And when you tell a human, no, I can't have this anymore, even if it's wicked, even if it's toxic, even with its poison, it was with me for so long. And I'm going to miss it. It's almost like there needs to be this funeral for sin. I mean, that's the way the Bible talks about it, mortifying the flesh. Otherwise, we're not really given, I don't know, 
we don't really take a resolution like I can't have this anymore. Saying that, uh, hearing that said to yourself, saying that to yourself. Otherwise, there can be this sort of pseudo repentance that is not repentance at all. It's just um, uh, being sated. Let me explain. In, in his remarkable book, Tempted and Tried, which I'd recommend anybody to book about temptation, Russell Moore points out that uh, he, he takes two sins in particular and uses, and, and, and uses them to describe what he's talking about. He uses the sins of gluttony and lust. And when he points to these sins, listen, I'm just going to read what he wrote. <clears throat> he said, the act, you know, doing the sin, is followed by a resolve never to do it again, to leave it behind and find some sort of accountability. But what masquerades as a repentant conscience is in most cases little more than a sated appetite. Or after you get done doing it, you eat, eat way too much food, or you you know fill an appetite in an illicit way. You go, I'll never do that again, right? Because you're full. See, but he writes, when the appetite is hungry once again, the demonic powers will collaborate with the biological impulses to find a way to make it seem irresistible again. And as the cycle of temptation grinds on, the illusion of repentance keeps the sin in hiding, so that actual repentance never happens. Until, and God forbid, I would add, as with Esau, the conscience is so seared that repentance becomes impossible. But you see his point. He's saying you sort, of, you sort of tell yourself you're repenting when in fact you're just full. With real repentance, there's a resolution to forsake sin. Perhaps the best illustration of this is uh, C.S. Lewis. He writes a fictional book uh, called The Great Divorce. And uh, I got invited to go with the Lechies and some others to see this as a play. And in this, in this book, again, it's, it's fiction. But the idea here is that um, uh, these, uh, these folks can see glory and they can, they can get into heaven or the promised land or whatever, the glory. Uh, but they got one guy who uh, wants to get into glory and he's kind of marching his way to glory. And you're cheering for him. You want him to get into the promised land or whatever. Again, it's just this made-up book. But he's got this, uh, he's got this uh, uh, like lizard dragon creature, I guess miniature dragon on his shoulder and uh he knows that they won't like this dragon in glory it's got to go and the dragon represents this temptation this sin right and so the dragon keeps talking to him and he's always whispering in his ear and he's been with him for so long he's had him forever and he oh and he just and he keep and so anyway he you kind of you kind of enter the scene uh and uh, they're yelling at each other and he's like just shut up would you just stop just oh just be quiet like you've got to just be tame, you know, just be cool, man. And the, the lizard's, you know, talking to him. He's like, just shut up. Will you just stop talking? Like, stop annoying me. Stop being right. And this angel walks up with his flaming sword. He says, I can make him shut up. And the lizard's like, no, he'll do it, right? I can, I can behave. I can be cool, right? And the, the guy says, like, whoa, 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 that's a little drastic. Like, it seems to me if you take that sword, you're going to kill this thing. And the angel's like, that's exactly what I intend to do, right? And so now he's really worried. He says this, and see if this doesn't, isn't this remarkable insight into human nature? He says something like this. This isn't exact quotes. It's just how I remember it. Uh, uh, he says, no, 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 I don't, that's too drastic. That's going too far. I don't want you to kill this thing. I just want you to help me make it more manageable. See, I don't want him gone. I don't want him dead. Just make him shut up. He's embarrassing me. He's keeping me from what I really want, but I want him to go to glory. I just want to bring him with me. And the angel said, no, no, you can't. You can't have it that way. It doesn't work that way. Well, can't you just shut him up? And the dragon's like, absolutely. I, 
I will be good. There is no need for drastic measures. I promise. I will never come again with this kind of temptation. I won't. I'll be good. I promise. Right. And the guy's like, see, he's already, he's repentant. It's cool. Right. And then he says this, he says, well, can I decide another time? And the angel said, all your decisions are wrapped up in this moment. Now's the time. There is no other time. Okay, I can't delay the decision. I can't mollify it. I can't say, I can't, I can't do some lesser version. And then he, so he hits him with one last objection. He tells the angel, he says, but that sword looks pretty serious. If you take a swing it and kill this thing, mightn't you also kill me too? I mean, that's a flaming sword. That could really hurt. And the angel says, I'm not going to lie. I won't tell you that it won't hurt. All I promise is you won't die. How's that for a message? You want to get ready for the coming of the king? Repent so much that your only promise is you won't die. And it's worth it. What, whatever you lose in the process of repentance, it'll be worth it to be free. Hard-hitting stuff. Well, the, the, the guy, just so I don't leave you hanging, um, in the whole book, everybody has a sad ending except this one guy. And he tells the angel, all right, do it. And sure enough, the guy feels like he's going to die, but the, the lizard dies and turns into a stallion and he rides into heaven. I mean, it's, it's pretty outrageous. You have to read the book. But it has a happy ending, you know. Um, and then, of course, he can't realize when he looks back, he can't realize why he ever... And that's, that's that Spurgeon line. You know, that's what repentance does. It makes the man love what he once hated and hate what he once loved. Listen to conversion stories. Hmm? Listen to people who've crossed over from death to life. Don't they talk that way? Say, I used to, I, I used to go so hard after wealth. I used to go so hard after power. And now I look back, I hated that about myself. I was trampling over people. I can't believe I did that. Don't you hear conversion stories? I was doing stuff that I now hate. Meanwhile, when you listen to people before they get saved, some of you think back 10 years, 20 years, a church on a Sunday morning with this group of people, you would have hated that. Now you're like, I love what I once hated. Isn't that what the Apostle Paul, right? I mean, that's his, he's like, listen, I'm now one of these Christians that I used to set out to kill. I love, now you love the people of God. Whereas before you despised us as a bunch of crazy fundamentalists. Probably still fundamentalist a little, but maybe not the crazy. You love what you once hated. I want to interject now because some of you are in the middle of repentance. I believe, I believe this message is for somebody who's caught you sort of right. I kind of caught you right in the middle of this thing. And you're kind of dealing with something where you're like, I, I see it as evil and I'm trying to turn. How do I know if it's real repentance or false repentance? In other words, uh, people ask me this sometimes. If I ever commit this sin again, does that mean I haven't truly repented? And I've thought a lot about this question. Um, I believe the answer is no. Here's what I mean. Repentance is about a change of heart that, yes, will inevitably lead to a change of behavior. But it doesn't mean that there won't be relapse. So what's the relationship between repentance and behavior? I'll show you. It's verse 8. John says in verse 8, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And then another gospel writer, Luke, goes on to give some examples. He said, for example, if you have, here's some fruit that is in keeping with repentance. If you have two tunics, give one away. And if you have lots of food, share with people who don't have any food. In other words, these are the things that happen from a repentant heart. So let me say it this way. Repentance is not the new deeds. Repentance is not suddenly getting it perfect. It's the inward change that bears the fruit of the new deeds. And he is demanding this inward change. So uh, this is kind of like 
choose your own application here. You got to decide which camp you're in and you got to decide which application is for you, right? If you are a person who thinks repentance, real repentance can happen and there, you just keep doing the same sin over and over and over again after you're repentant. Come on, man, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Okay. You're not showing anybody any real fruit here. And so repentance, I think inevitably will lead to a change in behavior. Stop doing those things. I think there will be some of that. If however, you find yourself in the camp and often this is the person who's not doing the sin, but the person who's trying to walk the sinner through. And I know I'm getting the layers of complexity here. But if you're the person who said, I'm sorry, but if you were truly repentant, you would never do this again. I would say, ah, bear fruit in keeping with repentance to me means that repentance is the soil and the seed by which the fruit will one day grow. But no fruit I know of grows overnight. The only fruit that grows overnight is, in fact, artificial and poisonous. And made in a laboratory, right? Real fruit comes from soil and seed. And the good soil and the good seed of repentance will bear fruit. But there must be patience and grace. So I don't, you know, I leave it to you. If you're more in the judgmental camp, you got to hear that bear fruit in keeping repentance doesn't mean that if he ever does it again or she ever does it again, she's never repented. And that's not true. On the other hand, if you're the person who is sort of on the, uh, like, uh, what's the, like, like, like I have license to sin because God's a God of forgiveness, then come on, we're dead to sin. You can't. Uh, you got to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And finally, I would add that we, we need to, uh, sort of a major thing to repent from is, uh, and this is a little technical, but uh, repent from, how do I say this? You got to repent from having said all this about, you got to repent, you got to do this. Having said all that, uh, you need to repent from anything that smacks of, uh, uh, that you're somehow right with God based on anything but his grace. I don't know if that made any sense or not. You got to repent from anything that smacks of you're being made right with God. In other words, if, if you're like, there's a weird way that Satan could twist this message around and be like, it's all about your repentance and how well you repent. And some of you are prideful about your repentance. What'd you repent from? Pride, right? You know, and I'm made good with God because of how well I repent, right? Well, then in that case, you actually need to repent from your repentance. You see? Uh, where am I getting all this from the Pharisees? That's exactly what they did. Look at what, look at what they said. Look what John says. He says, I know what you're thinking. Presumption. I know what you're thinking. You're thinking you're made right with God. This message of wrath, this message of repentance, it's for somebody else. Why do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. In other words, John knew exactly what they were thinking. They're showing up. They hear a message on wrath and they hear you need to be baptized. Who's that for? If you are a good, faithful Jew in the first century, that is absolutely for a specific group of people. The, the warning that there is wrath coming. You don't have any promises that you're a child of Abraham and there's wrath coming. And therefore, your only hope would be to be baptized. The only message that would be for, would be for a Gentile. For the wrath is for the Gentiles. Why? We're the chosen. We're the children of Abraham. We've even been marked as infants. We were marked. As infants, we were marked to show by a religious symbol that we are children of Abraham. Thank you very much. So wrath is for Gentiles. Wrath is for the other. And in fact, the way you would welcome a, a Gentile into the Jewish community was through this process of baptism. Right? Okay? And so th this whole message is for everybody else. And that's exactly John's point. He's saying, whoa, 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 whoa. And, and this is their logic. This is, basically, this is their logic. <clears throat> God is faithful and God cannot lie. True. God made promises to Abraham and he said the children of Abraham will be blessed not only with temporal blessings, but also with eternal blessings. Ergo, 
if there are no, if God were to wipe out all the children of Abraham, if his wrath were to come and we were all be wiped out, then there'd be nobody, there'd be no uh, uh, reciprocal, there'd be no um, bucket to hold all those blessings. If the children of Abraham are gone, where's God going to pour out his blessings? Because the promises were for the children of Abraham. Therefore, we're safe from the wrath of God because we're going to be the recipients of a blessing. Not even on what we've done, but because God can't lie. He's got to have a place for those blessings of land. John knew what he was thinking, and his reply was, don't think you can pull rank by saying we're children of Abraham. God can't lie. You're exactly right. But say God does need to pour out his blessings, and he needs children of Abraham. He says, I tell you the truth. He can raise up a child of Abraham out of that rock right there. Or worse, a Gentile. He could raise up a child of Abraham out of anything he wants. And sure enough, in the ministry of Jesus, we see that's exactly what he does. The rocks are crying out and the Gentiles are coming in, right? He does what he does. So don't, don't think you can pull rank. Now, this is not a sermon on infant baptism versus believer's baptism. But I do know somebody in my church who was baptized as an infant. The thing that convinced them to follow through with believer's baptism was Matthew 3. Because her point was this. They were marked in the same way when somebody, if somebody baptized you as an infant, that is meaningless for you, but it meant a lot to them, right? You probably had people that really loved you and really cared about you, whether it was a mom or a dad or a godmother or God. I mean, you get what I'm saying? They loved you. They cared about you. And they wanted some means of marking you as part of the covenant community, right? And then to hear a later in life to come to some church like city on a hill, or if you come to my church and you hear me say, once you become a believer of Jesus, you need to go through adult baptism. You need to be water baptized. You baptize as a believer. That's like scandalous. I'll never forget being in my church. And this kid was raised Greek Orthodox. His mom didn't speak in English, just Greek. His dad, you know, it was Cypriot. So it was sort of Greek Cypriot and there, you know, and he wanted to be baptized. And he's like, Tom, could you come over and help counsel? And the sister was there and I'm listening. And he's talking and in Greek and Greek's being yelled in English occasionally. And I hear words. I'm like, mm, I'm so glad I could help. Right. My point is it was scandalous. She's saying you've already been marked. You've already been marked as part of the covenant community. I mean, she didn't use those words. Maybe she did. I don't know. It's in Greek. But the point is she didn't, she wasn't getting it. She's like, how could you do it? And his point was, you understand that was for you. This is, this is for me. This is an individual act of repentance and faith. And that's happened in my heart. Now I have to show the world. I have to tell the world publicly that this is my decision. Uh, anyway, back to the point, the, 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 this, this girl was a uh, woman, I should say, was baptized because she said this is what convinced her. She said there was a group of people who were already marked and that was important for their parents. That was important for the community. But then John called not the pagans who'd never been baptized. He called these people who'd been marked to be baptized as an individual act of repentance and faith. And that's what convinced her for believers baptism. So I don't know if anybody's struggling with that. I would urge you. Uh, to be baptized as a believer, to, if you have been saved by grace, to make that known, even if, and especially, you were baptized as an infant. So John, anyway, John's point, repent from the presumption, he tells the Pharisees. This presumption that I'm okay with God because, well, because of blank. How? Let's just do it that way. How would you fill in this blank? I'm okay before a holy God because of blank. If you fill in that blank, with anything other than some word, phrase, or group of words that resound with God's grace alone, you got to repent from that. So if you're to fill in, I'm okay with God, I'm okay with the Holy God because I've lived a good life. No, it's going to be burned up like chaff in the fire, with unquenchable fire. Well, I'm okay with God because I've, I, I'm from the right family. Ah, I was born in a Christian family. Nobody is born in a Christian family. You may have been raised by Christian parents, but only Christians have to be born again into their family. True Christians, you see? 
Repent from what? What is it that makes you okay with God? Now, if on the other hand, and I suspect many of you would say, what makes me okay with God is because I've been born again. Or for those of you that are visual people, I've been washed in the blood of the spotless lamb of Jesus. Or for the theology geeks, I have had the imputation of his righteousness, which justifies me before a holy God. Uh, That's fine, Johnny Calvin, whatever, man. Like whatever, you got it. It's grace alone. All those answers are correct. If they say it's because of what he did and I've got to repent from any form of self-salvation or presumption upon God. Well, you see why it would be a lot easier to prepare our homes for Advent, uh, for Martha Stewart coming over or for the Lechies coming over. But uh, this is real repentance. In fact, to the point where some people would take the message of John the Baptist and say, this is all too much. It's all too stern. I mean, I think the objection would be to this passage, Tom... Like, I get that there's real evil out there in the world, but I'm sort of a average run-of-the-mill sinner. I'm not, like, truly evil, you see? Um, isn't all this too stern? Isn't all this too much? I mean, what about Jesus? Think about it. I mean, that's the message of John the Baptist, the wild prophet in the wilderness. But surely Jesus, I mean, grace and love. Here's the thing. That whole thing about dead branches get thrown in the fire. Jesus said all that and more. In John 15, who does this sound like? He says, any, any branch that bears fruit, my father will prune it and it will bear more fruit. Any branch that doesn't bear fruit will be what? Cut down and thrown into the fire. I mean, it, it may seem too stern to say, yeah, but can our sins really offend a holy God? Listen to what you're saying. Holy and God. What right do we as creatures have over our creator? If heaven really is meant to be a perfect place, if there, if there, if there has to be this, this sin, there has to be that moment where the angel saying, which is it? All decisions are this decision. It may seem too stern, but it's real. Advent doesn't allow you to play games. It's real. And this is what I would add in closing. It is a word of judgment, this word repent. But listen, listen, listen. If there is no word of judgment, then there is no need of gospel. You get what I'm saying? If there's, no, if there's no word of judgment, then what do I have? What am I doing? If you and I, if, if there's a world out there that really is bound for hell, then we need gospel preachers and we've got to go at it. If not, then if, there's not re- if, if somehow I've misread and sin is not that serious and the stakes are somehow not that high, then please let me know because I would like to get in another line of work. It's keeping it real. But I believe it's real. And therefore, my job is to proclaim the rescue. The rescue. The good news. The gospel. There's real sin. Some of you right now could be. right. Remember in Genesis chapter 4 when God tells Cain and Abel, he says, Cain, sin is crouching at your door. It's crouching. It's ready to strike. Some of you are right there. Souls in peril. So you need a rescue. Well, the rescue, of course, John, John's rescue is a little, well, again, he's not Martha Stewart. He's, he's John the Baptist. This is his gospel. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who's coming after me is mightier than I, whose sands I'm not, sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. He's coming. His winnowing fork is in his hand. You know what I mean? It's a little rough around the edges, but it's good news. What's he saying? John the Baptist is the greatest MC that the world has ever known. Right? What's an MC's job? 
And MC's job is to make sure the crowd is ready for the main event to come out to the stage. Right? So if I'm the MC at a concert, put your hands together, get on your feet, it's Nickelback, or whatever you, you know. You be get them out there. If it's a comedian, if it's a speaker, you got to get your, like, let's get amped up, right? That comment, okay? How do you bring on the King of Kings and Lord of Lords? Right? How do you do that? John the Baptist would say, not get on your feet and clap your hands. It's get on your face and open your heart and say, God, do business. Why? Because he is coming. And when he comes, what's John saying? What's John saying? Why is that so important? Nobody goes to a show to see the MC. You, in fact, the MC's job, you know, make it nice, make it funny, get them wrapped up. They get off the stage. And that's what John does. He goes, I have to decrease because he, so he can increase. He's coming on the main stage. And why is that such good news? What's that business about? I'm not worthy to untie Santa. What he's saying is I can convict you of your sin, but the one who's coming can burn it away forever. I can baptize you for repentance. He can baptize you in the Holy Spirit and fire. He can deal with sin and bear it forever and ever. So it is gospel, but it's sort of a rough around the edges gospel. I would say it this way. John the Baptist message is like a hammer and we're the nail. <laughs> but that hammer is meant to drive that nail deep into the love of God. So drive it deep, God. Drive me deep into the love and grace of God. Let me know who I am. Let me know that I'm worse than I thought I was so that I can rejoice that you are better than I ever thought you were. In fact, drive me so deep into your love and then take some, take some wood putty of the Holy Spirit. I mean, take a nail set. Drive me further and then take some wood putty and seal me forever and ever. And don't let me leave, you see? That's the power of John the Baptist's message. He's saying, people, get ready. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the word, the call to repent. I thank you, Lord, that nobody, uh, I thank you that, that nobody doesn't need to hear a call to repentance, that the whole Judean countryside went out. God, we pray uh, to have ears to hear just like that original audience, that we would not be like the Pharisees who are presuming we're okay with you because of anything other than your grace. And we thank you for the sort of ultimate Old Testament prophet, John the Baptist, finishing the work of all those prophets to point to King Jesus. And Lord, we thank you that we saw what Jesus did through the scriptures. We, we see that he bore sin away. He didn't just call us and convict us, call us out on it and convict us, but he bore it away with his own blood shed on Calvary's cross. So Lord, prepare our hearts to rejoice in the good news this uh, Christmas. Pray great blessings on the service on the 18th and then again on Christmas Eve here. And we pray, oh God, that you would most of all prepare this world to hear the message that they can be saved in Christ, Christ alone. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. We have a reminder here of the great price that was paid. You know, you think about <laughs> the axe is laid at the root of the tree. I mean... That's a, that's a stark metaphor uh, to think, you know, the, 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 the image here is a lumberjack takes that axe and just lines up a shot and it's all over, right, with one more. Now, how did that happen? How does somebody go from being under the active wrath of God, being utterly cut off, and yet the Bible says that we 
you know, sinners. Talk about, an, talk about irreconcilable differences. There's an irreconcilable difference. Sinful man and a holy God. And yet the Bible says we're grafted in. I'll tell you how. On the cross of Calvary, it was Jesus who was cut off for us and our salvation so that we would never be. He underwent that pain. He underwent that axe at the root of the tree, that winnowing fire, so that we would never have to experience that. He gave us visual reminders to remember week in, week out, this good news. On the night Jesus was betrayed, he took some bread, and after he'd given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And after supper, in the same manner, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. He said, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so this is a supper for believers. It's obviously a symbol, and it's a symbol that points to the body and blood of Jesus Christ to remind us that God saves sinners. And so the saved sinners are to come and be reminded of what uh, God has done for us. So the ushers will come and they'll prepare and they know how to get us to the table reverently. And uh, so we'll just follow their lead. We'll use this time maybe to prepare our hearts as we think about the Lord's table. Thanks for listening to City on a Hill's podcast. For more resources, visit us at chccny.com.